following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Father, you've privileged us with many opportunities as a church body to participate in advancing your kingdom Advancing it here locally through CEF and avenues and many ministries here that we're a part of and also globally, Father, in the Philippines and Malawi and Honduras and so many places around the world. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity you've given not only to provide financially for these things, but to pray for, participate in, and and Lord, to have people involved in these things from our church body. And I pray, God, that you would... Um, Please continue to allow us the privilege to serve you in this way and pray for these uh, things. Pray for the Philippines trip, Lord, that you would bless uh, the efforts there in planning and in going. And bless Claudia, Lord, and the others and CEF who given their time to proclaim your gospel to uh, the children all around the Los Angeles area. Pray too for avenues, God. Please continue to to bless them. Give them strength as they seek to uh, share the gospel and come alongside uh, those that are in very difficult situations. And Father, we thank you too for your word and how you encourage us through it and challenge us. And I pray this morning, Lord, that you would open our eyes to behold the wonderful things in your law and Lord, by your spirit, empower us to live them out. In Jesus' name, I pray all these things. Amen. Well, I don't normally do this, but there is a, a book I was going to recommend to you this morning. It's called The Adventures of Amelia Bedelia. Any of you familiar with this? Actually, my wife came across it as she was teaching our children how to read. It's a wonderful children's book series, uh, an easy reader for uh, as they're learning how to read. And it's, um, it's a fictitious character, but it's written by Peggy Parrish back in the 60s. And it's about a, a maid named Amelia Bedelia. And what makes this uh, series so fun is that uh, Amelia Bedelia is your ultimate literalist. She took everything exactly literally. And so it was, it's very humorous to see what she does with various figures of speech and, and common day idioms that we use all of the time and how she responds to them. And even though this, this book is written for kids, I have to admit, actually, I've been reading it. It's kind of funny. So, um, One book uh, I read was about uh, when she goes on a camping trip with her employers, the, the Rogers, Mr. and Mrs. Rogers. And as they were loading up the car, Mr. Rogers has said, okay, Amelia, it's time to hit the road, to which Amelia, with a puzzled look, grabs a stick and begins hitting the street behind the car. And so Mr. Rogers said, no, 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 come on, we're, we're leaving now. And so they hop in the car and they travel to the campsite. And when they get there, Mr. Rogers asks Amelia to put some coffee on the fire, to which she takes the pot of coffee and dumps it onto the fire. Well, he was very frustrated by that, and so he said, Amelia, go jump in a lake, and to which she replied, I, I, don't, I can't, sir, I don't have any dry clothes to change into. And that's when Mr. Rogers, after he finally calmed down, he asked her, well, Amelia, did, did you bring the, the tent stakes that I asked you to bring? And she said, of course, and she hands him a package, and he opens a package, and he finds these stakes that have been cut into the shape of a tent. <laughs> So Mr. Rogers, very frustrated by that point, said, now, now how are we going to pitch the tents? To which Amelia replied, oh, so I've already taken care of that. I pitched them into the bushes. Another time they had asked Amelia to dress the chicken for dinner. This was funny. <laughs> yeah, you got it. Yeah, you can't, probably can't see this picture, but there he is. Raw chicken with the baby clothes put on neatly by Amelia. Actually, a lot of clever and cute things uh, within the story. And I bring Amelia up because she's just a classic example of a person who just didn't get it. Uh, she was clueless often and completely missed the point. By the way, they kept her on and hired her because she made amazing pies. And so Mr. Rogers wanted to keep her. But perhaps you know somebody like that. Maybe a child of yours who just doesn't seem to get it sometimes. Well, you know, maybe hypothetically speaking, you know, maybe you're in a situation. Again, this is hypothetical. Just, you know. You're in a situation, you ask your uh, child to clear the dishes from the table, you come back later to find that they, there just were still more dishes that were on the table, and you ask your child, how come you didn't clear the table like I'd ask? And they say, you didn't tell me to put out all the dishes. And so, again, that's just hypothetical. It might happen in your home. 
Well, that's just an example of you know, taking something literally to the point of missing the point. Jesus often encountered this in a serious note in his ministry, especially with the religious leaders of Israel. Matthew 9 describes one such occasion when uh, Jesus had just called Matthew, the tax collector, to follow him. And so uh, he's eating with a bunch of Matthew's friends, the tax collectors, and the Pharisees happen upon the scene. And they said to the disciples, why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus said to them this. He said, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. When he said that phrase, go and learn what this means, he's telling them, you've missed the point. You just don't get it. You've totally missed what God has intended. He then quotes Hosea 6, 6, book we're in, where God had said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And what he's telling them there is that uh, it's the outward ritual that you're uh, doing. That's not what I'm interested in. You've missed the whole point of the law. You have no idea what God really wants. That's exactly where the people of Hosea's day were at. They just didn't get it either. They too had no idea what God really wanted. And so God sends another prophet, a man named Hosea. He sends him to the people of Israel and he uses Hosea's life in a a shocking way, a shocking approach so that they would not miss the point. Hosea, his broken marriage to an unfaithful wife who he later brought back was an illustration of what Israel had done to God and how God desired to respond to her to woo her back. And God gave them this real life illustration. He put this poor man through so many terrible and hurtful and painful and broken circumstances in order to be an illustration to the people through Hosea in hopes that they would get it. In hopes that they would see that God was not after ritual, but relationship. So that they would see that their sin was not simply breaking a rule, but betraying a trust. So that they'd understand God's concern for them was not as a ruling despot, but as an affectionate husband. But they still didn't get it. Even after all of that. Despite God's admonitions and appeals and consequences, and warnings, and even using Hosea's life as an illustration to help them better understand, they still didn't get it. They still continued in their spiritual harlotry and their unfaithfulness to God. And so as we approach Hosea chapter 5 this morning, we will see again God's declaration of judgment for their betrayal. But chapter 5 is is more than that. It's, It's more than just describing the judgment. It is It is preparing and setting us up for chapter 6. And that is where the the core theme of Hosea's message is found. It's the message of the entire Bible, really. And it is in that chapter in Hosea 6 that we will see what God really wants. So if you're not there yet, please turn to Hosea chapter 5. Our outline this morning will be God's declaration from Hosea 5. And then Hosea's interjection in chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. And then God's exasperation in chapter 6, beginning in verse 4. First, let's look at God's declaration. Look at chapter 5, verse 1, where God through Hosea says this, Hear, O priests, give heed, O house of Israel. Listen, O house of the king, for the judgment applies to you. For you have been a snare at Mizpah and a net spread out on Tabor. The revolters have gone deep into depravity, but I will chastise all of them. I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, Ephraim, you have played the harlot. Israel has defiled itself. Their deeds will not allow them to return to their God. For a spirit of harlotry is within them, and they do not know the Lord. Stop there. Well, just to make sure that nobody would think they were exempt from God's message here, he begins by addressing everybody. He addresses the religious leaders, he addresses the people, and he addresses the royal household. And he tells all of them, listen up. Listen to what I have to say. He had just ended chapter 4 by exposing Gilgal and Bethel as places of polluted worship. And here he mentions two other locations, Mizpah and Tabor. These are lesser known locations in Israel. I've got a map here to help show this a little bit. Uh, Bethel and Gilgal are located here in Ephraim. He mentions uh, uh, Mizpah, which is probably here east of the Jordan River in Gilead. 
And he talks about Tabor, which is probably up in the northwest area in the Valley of Jezreel. And these places, again, are lesser known places. And I think by mentioning them, he's already talked about the religious centers, Bethel and Gilgal, and how their worship was corrupt there. I think he mentions these other places to show that it is pervasive. It is spread over all the land. The entire nation has been polluted. As we've seen throughout Hosea, God describes their idolatry, their worship of Baal and and other gods, their polluted worship of God himself. He describes it as spiritual harlotry, as an unfaithful spouse putting their trust in, giving their affection to other gods. He says in verse 4 that they were so enslaved that that they were not even be capable of turning back to God. Verse 4 ends by expressing the real problem. They do not know the Lord. What really makes that statement so sad and so wrong, back in verse 3, God says, I know you, Ephraim, but here at the end of verse 4, you do not know me. I have sought you, but you have spurned me. You know Baal better than you know me. And notice here Hosea employs a change in pronouns. He's done this before. He switches from the second person, you, to the third person, they. He's gone back and forth several times in the book. And I think he does that. It's a rhetorical device. He's speaking to them. Then he's speaking about them. And it helps to get their attention. Notice as he goes on to say in verse 5, Moreover, the pride of Israel testifies against them. And Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity. Judah also has stumbled with them. They will go with their flocks and herds to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He is withdrawn from them. They have dealt treacherously against the Lord, for they have borne illegitimate children. Now the new moon will devour them within their land. It's interesting here. He lists out Israel and Ephraim separately. Again, Israel was uh, normally a term used to refer to the ten northern tribes of Israel, of of which Ephraim was one of the tribes. After the split between north and south, uh, Israel was that term that that described and designated the northern tribes. But here, he splits out Israel and identifies Ephraim separately, as if to say, Ephraim, you are a special violator, a particular violator of this covenant. Ephraim was a designation that Hosea often used, for Israel within his book. Uh, It was uh, that designation, I think, because one, it was a political center for Israel. That's where Samaria was located, which is where the king lived. It was also a religious center for Israel. Again, Bethel and Gilgal were key places of worship within the land. I think, too, again, that he's calling Ephraim out here separately, again, identifying them as they are particular violators of the covenant that God had made with them. And notice, too, here in verse 5, we see Judah up here. The brothers to the south. In fact, Hosea references them several times in his book. Even though he was ministering and prophesying primarily to Israel, he is quick to point out that their brothers to the south were also guilty of idolatry. But in any case, their enslavement to idolatry had brought them to such a place that verse 6 indicates that they would seek the Lord but not find Him. That they would bring their sheep and their herds to bring sacrifices to Him. But God says, you won't find me because they were bringing these things In desperation, not in repentance. They were treating God like Baal, and he's mad, so we'll bring these things along to appease him. God said, you will not find me. God would not hear them because of their continual unfaithfulness to him who had been faithful to them. And then there's an interesting phrase right at the end where it describes the new moons that would devour them. What does that mean? Is the moon going to come out of the sky and eat them? Now, obviously, it's a picture. It's a, they had new moon festivals that they would celebrate, but these rituals had been corrupted. And so God is, in a sense, using it as a metaphor is that you're being consumed by your idolatrous behavior. It will destroy you. And that is what he goes on to describe in verses 8 and following. As he says there, Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah, sound an alarm at Beth Avon. Behind you, Benjamin. Ephraim will become a desolation in the day of rebuke. Among the tribes of Israel, I declare what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move a boundary. On them I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he was determined to follow man's command. Verse 8 begins abruptly. We see this a lot in Hosea. There's these shifts back and forth and change in tone, change in setting. Here God 
uh, is speaking through Hosea and he's calling a watchman. The, the cities would have a watchman on the tower to look for any enemies that were approaching. And if they would see one, they were to blow the shofar, blow the horn, the trumpet in order to alert the city. And so here is the scene being described. He's saying, Gibeah, blow your horn, Ramah, blow your horn, Beth Avin, alert the people. It's a warning of an enemy army that is advancing. And the places he mentions here, Gibeah, Ramah, very interesting because those locations are actually within the area. Oops. Yeah, user error. Uh Uh-oh. Oh, Oh dear. Okay, so anyway, picture Israel. Uh, Ephraim is the tribe just above it. Uh, Benjamin's right below. And in Benjamin, Gibeah and Ramah are actually where they're located, just north of Jerusalem. beth or Bethel is right at the border. And so what he's saying here in these verses in verse 8 is he's telling these cities within Benjamin to be warned. That's implying something very important. It's implying that Israel has been wiped out. And now the army is advancing into the region of Judah. That uh, devastation, that destruction is described in verse 9, that Ephraim would become a desolation, a complete ruin. Verse 11 says she'll be oppressed and trampled. That word uh, crushed is a word that's often used in the case of an enemy nation that is destroying another. These statements in verses 8 through 11, they indicate that a significant event was coming upon Israel, an event in which they would be wiped out and destroyed, trampled upon, crushed. It wasn't too long after these words that Hosea spoke, probably less than 10 or 15 years later, that the Assyrians would indeed march into Israel and completely decimate the land, taking many of the Israelites away captive. That would be in 722 B.C. The end of verse 11 says that this happened because Israel was determined, the New American Standard says, to follow man's command. That word command there actually, I think, is better uh, rendered filth or nothingness. I think the picture here in the context of Hosea saying this judgment is happening because you have vainly followed idols, that you have pursued those who are filthy, the idol worship. In any case, God tells him in verse 12 that he is really the ultimate source of their consequences. Look there with me at verse 12. He describes this with some interesting images. He says in verse 12, therefore, I'm like a moth to Ephraim and like rottenness to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jareb. But he isn't able to heal you or to cure you of your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear to pieces and go away. I will carry away and there will be none to deliver. I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. God describes here a progression, a progression of his destruction. And he uses some interesting images to do that. He first describes that destruction like he would be like a moth. Now, now what is it that moths do? They flutter around the light, but they also eat something, right? They eat clothing. I was introduced to this when I was at my grandparents one time and I opened up their cedar chest and there was all these old clothes in there and they were torn to shreds because they had been consumed by moths. God says here, I will be as a moth, consuming, destroying Israel. In verse 14, he changes the metaphor. He changes it from an annoying destruction of a moth upon clothing to the terrifying destruction of a lion upon flesh. An attack by a moth could be survived, but not one by a lion. Verse 15, God reveals that after this destruction, that the ultimate judgment, the ultimate consequence would not just simply be the the, uh, decay that would take place because of a moth or the, the destruction and death that would take place because of a lion. God says, after that, I will depart. I will withdraw myself. That's the ultimate consequence. That is the worst judgment that God could do is to withdraw from them. But notice there's an important little word that he puts in the middle of verse 15. It's that word until. Two letters in Hebrew. It means that God would go away until until they would acknowledge or literally suffer for their guilt and then seek the Lord earnestly. 
God holds out hope that things would change if they would change. And I think this is where at this moment Hosea seizes upon those words because to this point he'd been the messenger. He'd been proclaiming the message that God had given him to speak. But it is at this moment the shepherd, the pastor, the preacher comes out in Hosea and he appeals to the people. That's what we see in chapter 6, Hosea's interjection beginning in verse 1. Look there where he says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. So let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn, and he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. Now these three verses... Some have taken to be, uh, these are the future repentant Israel that is speaking here. Uh, That uh, it's uh, something that is being uh, looked at in the future, that Hosea is being given a word from them to write. But that just doesn't fit the flow here of what's been happening. God's been talking about their judgment in chapter 5. We're going to see in verses 4 and after that in chapter 6, him describing their disloyalty. This isn't a restoration passage here. This is a passage that is a call to repentance. It is Hosea who is speaking here. It is Hosea who is crying out to the people. Did you hear what God said? Until. He said until. There can be change. There is hope. If you would change. Hosea uses a word here at the beginning that's become very familiar in our journey through the prophets. It's the Hebrew word shuv. Which means what? Come let us. What does he say? Come let us shuv. Let us return. Now, in the physical realm, that means literally to turn. In the moral realm, what does it mean? To turn morally means what? To repent. John the Baptist's favorite word, to repent. It's a change in moral direction. It's actually to go the opposite way. It is to turn from sin and to God. It is to jump and shift from one way of life, following self and Satan, to another, following the Lord. Hosea says here, Turn from your idolatry, that is, repent from your sin. As we saw in Joel and Amos, this turning was not just admitting that you are wrong, but also acknowledging that God is right. It's not just feeling bad about sin. It is a wholesale commitment to abandon it. As Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 1.9, he said that they, the Thessalonians, had turned from God, or turned to God, excuse me, from idols to serve a living and true God. That shows us there can't be true change. There can't be genuine forgiveness. There cannot be real salvation unless there is a resolve, a conviction, a compelling, a commitment to turn from sin to God. Hosea then notes in verse 2, if they would do that, if they would return to the Lord, if they would return to Him in faith, repent from their sin, God is willing to forgive and restore and heal the pain and the consequences of their sin. He uses these two words there, revive and raise. They're metaphorical. It literally is the idea of revive back to health, to raise from the dead. Metaphorically speaking, that if they would but repent, that they would be transformed, that there would be spiritual renewal, that they would rise from their spiritual death. Beginning with Tertullian, though, uh, he took that phrase, uh, it talks about uh, rising on the third day. Now, what does that sound like? Well, Tertullian, who lived in the second century, he ran with that. He's the first one to say that this is a direct reference to Jesus rising from the dead, that he rose on the third day. And that'd be a, a neat prophecy here buried within this passage, but that's not what he's talking about here. Actually, it's an idiom that he's using, a Hebrew idiom, where he says on the second day and the third, it's to communicate this idea of quickly, coming quickly, uh, responding soon. It cannot be that he's talking about the resurrection of Jesus because, one, he says he will raise us up, not raise him up. And secondly, notice, two, what would that statement after two days mean if it's in reference to the Messiah? No, he's simply talking here that if they repent, God would quickly Restore him, restore them. And that restoration, that forgiveness of sin, that uh, healing that he's promised is one that holds out, God holds out for any who would truly turn from their sin 
put their trust in Christ. First Peter 2, 24 says that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, what? You were healed. Spiritual healing. And that means this, that Jesus suffered God's judgment so you and I wouldn't have to. But we're only healed spiritually. We're only delivered from that judgment if we turn from our sin. Just as Isaiah talked about turning from sin, from our idols, to Christ. And that word to is so important here. It is vital that we see that. For being right with God isn't just feeling bad about your sin. It's not just uh, wanting to stop sinning. It's not even just confessing it. Again, the Thessalonians turned from idols to God. In fact, Paul said they turned from idols to serve a true and living God. It's, it's more, again, than not just doing something bad. It's a radical transformation. It's a change in who you serve. It's a change in who you worship. It's a change in who you love. It's a change in who you pursue. And notice here, Hosea didn't just say, let us return to the Lord and stop there. Look at verse 3. What other command, what other imperative does he add there? Let us Know the Lord. Let us know Yahweh. And that word know, yada here, is key in Hosea. We have seen it before. In fact, it's found 20 times in his book. uh, Six times here in chapters 5 and 6 alone. We said last week that it is a knowledge that is not just informational, but relational. God spoke of it back in Hosea 2.22 in the context of a marriage relationship when he said, And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, then you will know the Lord. In fact, Yadah is so relational, it is the word often used in the Old Testament for sexual intimacy. Genesis 4.1 says, Adam knew his wife. The same word, Yadah. And this wasn't just a modest or a Victorian way of of saying that they were intimate with one another. But it is one that shows and conveys this idea of a closeness as seen in that physical act. To know somebody in this fashion, to Yadah, is an intimate thing. But the problem for Israel, as we saw last week in Hosea 4.1, was that uh, there is no knowledge of God in the land. And so Hosea says here in chapter 6, verse 3, we need to repent and we need to know God. We need to know Him. We need a relationship with Him. We need to love Him. And notice here that to make the point emphatic, Hosea not only repeats it to let us know, but he adds another way, a manner in which we are to know. What does it say there? Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. That word press on means to chase to pursue, to hunt after, to strive zealously to obtain. It's a, it's a fervent pursuit. It's like that of a, a hungry animal chasing after its prey or, or, or a person who is seeking after treasure. Or it's the idea as expressed in the context here in Hosea of someone deeply in love and the pursuit that takes place when two people love one another. What is it that happens when they pursue each other? They spend every waking moment thinking of the other person, right? You manipulate your schedule in order to to make as much time as possible with them. Use every means to communicate. Phone, email, text, FaceTime, letters, dates. Right? There's a striving to seek after. There's a, a strong desire and impulse to pursue and to chase, right? You want to learn everything about that person. Not because you find it intellectually stimulating or another hobby to pursue. Rather, it is because you love them and you are building a relationship with them. And so it is no mistake that in a book that is written that centers upon a marriage relationship as an illustration with terms like betrothed and allure and woo and faithfulness. It is no mistake that this book would emphasize the need to know God, the need to have a relationship with Him. There's no surprise that this word Yadah would come up so often in relation to God. So, beloved, here in verse 3 of chapter 6, Hosea really identifies the purpose of our very existence. In this call to the people of Israel, he is really summing up for us what the Christian life is all about. 
Isn't that what Paul said back in Philippians 3 or, or forward in Philippians 3? In fact, turn there with me. Philippians. Yeah, we're actually going to delve into the New Testament for a minute here. Philippians 3. And this chapter is where Paul lays out his heart. He opens himself up and he describes what the driving passion of his life was. Before it had been achievement. Before Paul had been driven uh, to achieve, to live out the law perfectly, to be the Pharisee of Pharisees, he talks about. To be the one he was so zealous for God that he even persecuted anybody that would contradict Moses and the truth, or at least as he perceived it. And indeed, Paul had risen high in the ranks of the religious establishment. He had achieved. But notice what he says in Philippians 3, 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him and know the power of His resurrection and know the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, in order that I may attain to the righteousness from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I what? You see it there? I what? Press on. I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead. There it is again. I press on towards the goal of the upward call in Christ Jesus. This has Hosea 6.3 written all over it. This is an expansion, an application, a a conviction by a man who understands what Hosea was saying. Let us press on to know the Lord. And Paul is saying, yes, that's what it's all about. That's why I exist. That's my only passion. This one thing I do. That describes him. In reading this, you can't help to see that Paul just wants one thing. And what is that? I want Jesus. It's all I want. He didn't see Christ as merely a ticket out of hell or a good example to follow or a faithful prophet to consider or an all-wise teacher to listen to or a great leader to obey. Paul sees Jesus as life itself. What did he say in Galatians 2.20? I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer... I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. This is it, beloved. This is it. That is why you exist. That is why we exist. That is why Christ saved you. That's why you are here. To know Christ speaks of a closeness and an intimacy. That's what Paul is talking about here. It's an intimacy that Jesus expressed in John 15 when he talked about abiding in him, dwelling with him, having intimate fellowship with him, knowing him deeply. Now, Jesus, he died upon a cross to cleanse us from our sin, right? Any who would repent and turn to him in faith, they would be cleansed from their sin, right? Yes? Okay, just want to make sure. It's kind of important that we all understand that. Question is why? Why does our sin need to be cleansed? Peter talked about he bore our sins in his body, our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin. Why does our sin need to be forgiven so that we don't get punished for it? Is that what it is? So that we don't have to go to hell? Is that all? Jesus bore our sins in his body so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 
2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, it's not just the removal of sin, but also the receiving of his righteous life. And again, the question is, well, why? Why do we need to have our sin cleansed and receive his righteous life? Why is that? So we can have fellowship with him. So we could know him. He's a holy and perfect God. And for us to have that intimate relationship with him that he desires, that is why he sent Christ. So that our sin could be cleansed and forgiven. And so that we could receive his righteous life and stand before God without sin. And as if we had lived a perfect life. And then we experience fellowship with our maker. Just amazing. Just amazing. First John 1 7. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And with God and the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sin. Jesus prayed in John 17, 21 for us. He said, may they all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Jesus made answering that prayer possible when not long after that, the next day, he went on the cross, suffering in our place. And he died not just so that we might live, but so that we might live in him. You see, it's all about relationship. It's all about knowing God. It's all about fellowship with Him. That is the aim of the cross. Fellowship with God. Paul understood that. Hosea understood that. That's why he said, let us press on to know the Lord. It isn't just about repentance. It needs that. It necessitates that. It requires it. It requires turning from sin. But it's turning not just from sin, but turning to God. So the question I have for us this morning is, are you pressing on? In reading those words that Paul expressed, are you fiercely pursuing Jesus? Are you passionately running after him? Is knowing Christ really the one thing that you do? Would you say that is the reason you exist? That that characterizes your life? Well, that's Paul. I mean, Paul was like, Super Christian, guru Christian guy. You know, he was up there. So yeah, I'd expect him to write like that. I expect him to say that. Paul was a wicked sinner. Right? He murdered. He was a terrible, evil man. Until God saved him. He had no passion for Jesus. He hated him. The passion he had was to wipe out Jesus and any who believed in him. But God transformed him. And it's the same for you and me. We're all the same. We've all sinned against God. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, through faith in Christ, he transforms our heart and we can be as Paul and move to have the same passion that he had. Paul said, I press on toward the goal goal there being Christ likeness now this isn't a relationship that we uh, wait till we get to heaven to pursue it is one that we continue in heaven we pursue it now and when you get married you don't tell your spouse well honey I'll work on our relationship sometime down the road you know maybe when the kids are gone or we're retired or you know just when we have more time to work at it right now we got things to do and working on a relationship and marriage should characterize the whole marriage, right? Right from the beginning. We don't date Jesus until we're saved and then ignore him or give him little attention after that. And so Hosea's words here really should depict our entire lives as believers, should they not? Let us keep pressing on. Let us fervently strive to know the Lord. Let us continue and seek and chase after a deep and abiding, growing relationship with him. Amen? Well, looking back to Hosea, that verse in between, verses 1 and, two, 1 and 3, verse 2, 
He says that if they would turn from their idolatry, God would certainly respond in forgiveness. In fact, uh, he expresses that certainty with this idea that his, co- his going forth, that his response will be as certain as the dawn, as certain as the sun coming up. And then he says it would be like the rain and the latter rains of the harvest season, watering the earth, providing the much needed crops. Very interesting that he would use that picture. Because you remember, right, what was going on? The people of Israel in that day, what were they accused of? They're worshiping the Baals, right? Do you remember who they thought Baal was and what he provided? The rain. But God's saying, no, if you would turn to me, I'm the one who will give you rain. I'm the one that will provide for you. In fact, I've been the one providing for you. The one true God is really the one who will take care of you. But sadly, in Israel's Israel in Hosea's day, they loved their sin more than God. They would rather worship the deities of their own making than the deity who made them. And so after God's declaration in chapter 5 and, and Hosea's interjection in the first three verses of chapter 6, we come to God's exasperation beginning in Hosea 6, 4. Look there with me. God comes back and he says, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. Therefore, I've hewn them in pieces by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth and the judgments on you are like the light that goes forth. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant There they have dealt treacherously against me. In these verses, God again speaks. Hosea has interjected. He's called the people to repentance. And here the Lord speaks. And he speaks almost as one who's tried everything but to no avail. The people remain unchanged. He said, what what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? He says, I, it's the implication here is I've sent prophet after prophet. I, I have blessed you. I have brought you consequences. I have warned you. I have waited patiently. I have pleaded with you for centuries. And yet your loyalty to me, it's, it's as fleeting as, as dew that, that evaporates immediately. That word the NAS translates, the New Americans translates as, uh, standard translates as loyalty that's the Hebrew word chesed. It's a key word in Hosea, just like yada or no. This word as well is used several times in Hosea. In fact, we saw it last week in Hosea 4.1 when God said there was no faithfulness or kindness, chesed, or a, a knowledge of God in the land. Again, as we talked a little bit about it last week, it is a word rich in meaning. It, it carries the idea of mercy, of compassion, of kindness, of loyalty, love translated a number of ways in fact uh, it's interesting if you compare the various english translations of this word and see the variety that is used there it's used in verse four and also in verse six so it's interesting not only to compare between translations but also what they do with this word in two verses that are right next to each other for example the new american standard translates it as loyalty in both verse four and verse six the net bible translates it as faithfulness in both verses But the ESV and the Revised Standard Version translate it as love in verse 4 and then steadfast love in verse 6. Or the NIV translate it as love in verse 4 and mercy in verse 6. Or the New King James is faithfulness in verse 4 and mercy in verse 6. Are the translators confused? Not only are they translating a little differently uh, between translations, but even within translations. NIV has love in one verse and then right below, mercy. What these show is actually the word captures all of these things. It's a very rich idea and includes this idea of mercy and kindness and loyalty and steadfastness and love and affection. In fact, probably the best way to translate it would be loyal or steadfast love. Focuses primarily on a constant affection, an unwavering commitment within a relationship, a, a deep and unchanging loyalty that produces acts of kindness and mercy and compassion. It is an unconditional, faithful love that always seeks the benefit of the one loved. 
Chesed is an unconditional, faithful love that always seeks the benefit of the one loved. Some scholars view this word, and especially in regards to God's chesed for his people, as an obligatory thing. That, that God is obliged, that he's bound to keep his promise. They say it is God's care, that God shows his care because he has bound himself to this promise, to this covenant. But rather than God showing chesed because of a covenant, he makes a covenant because of his chesed. See the difference? It's like a marriage vow. You know, a marriage vow, when you stand up here, you know, one thing that, I, that uh, the marriage coordinator has is they have a piece of paper. It's a marriage license. That's a legal covenant. That's a legal promise. So right after we have the vows here, I'm rushed out of the doors and they, she puts the paper in front of my face to make sure I sign it so it's legal. So those vows are, are a verbal promise, but also a legal one. Now, is that the case? Is it a legal thing? And so now, okay, I'm obligated. I'm bound to this marriage because it's legal now. It is meant to be a promise made. It's a legal promise made because of a loyal affection. Right? The vows are simply a means to demonstrate that affection. I will show love to my spouse by committing to be faithful to her for life, to not abandon her, to care for her in good times and in bad, to be her best friend till death do us part. I make that commitment and I keep it to show my loyal love, my unwavering affection for her. Not because I've signed a piece of paper that says I have to. That's the exact idea seen back in Hosea 2.19 when God says to Israel, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness, in justice, and in chesed, in loving kindness and compassion. For you see, chesed is God's very nature. What did the Apostle John say in 1 John 4.8? God is love. In God's self-revelation to Moses in Exodus 34, 6, God said, Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, chesed. And he repeats it, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives sin and iniquity. So what's the point of all this? We have tucked away here in, in a minor prophet, little known prophet probably not a well-read book in many bibles but here tucked away in the middle of this book of hosea where god is speaking through the prophet and giving messages to a wayward people here we have in this book god opens up his very heart and reveals to humanity what he really wants it's amazing to me he sums up all of scripture here in three words i desire chesed That's what God says. I delight in. I I take pleasure in. I enjoy loyal love. And notice the parallel phrase that he gives in the second half of verse 6. He says, and I delight in knowledge. The knowledge of God. This tells us that he wants a loyal love in the context of a relationship with him. To know God is to love him. To love God is to know him. God says here that he wants the steadfast love more than what? Just making sure you're awake. More than sacrifices, right? And he delights in the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Now, is he saying here, is he pitching the sacrificial system? Is he rejecting it? Is he saying, you know what? All that stuff I said with Moses, forget about it. It doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. No, he's not pitching that. But he's clearly saying here is, I want your commitment, not just your actions. For your commitment will be demonstrated by your actions. I want your heart, not just your hands. For I know if I have your heart, then your hands will follow. In fact, the book of Deuteronomy, we'll get there someday um, in our reading, right? February is the month of decision here, by the way, right? We're in Leviticus and Numbers this month. All right, so just make it through that. We got Deuteronomy coming. But in the book of Deuteronomy, we find Moses' sermons that he delivers to the people of Israel just before their... A catchy tune. Thanks. 
The sermons that Moses delivers to the people of Israel just before, it's the next generation, just before they enter into the promised land. And in these collection of sermons, in chapter 5 of Deuteronomy, he reiterates the Ten Commandments. And after he expresses the Ten Commandments that were given in Exodus 20, at the end of that, he also indicates or tells them, reminds them of the promise that the previous generation had made to follow God's instruction, to obey it no matter what. And right after reminding them of this, he says these words, God speaks through Moses in Deuteronomy 5.29, this. Oh, that they had a heart in them that they would fear me and keep my, all my commandments always, that it may be well with them and with their sons forever. Oh, that they had such a heart in them. What is it God really wants? Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. Moses said these words. Now, Israel, what does the Lord require? What does he ask from you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to love him. And to serve him with all your heart and with all of your soul. That's the exact same sentiment that Hosea expresses. I want a loyal love, a a steadfast affection, a faithful commitment, a heart of compassion for me and for others. Is that not what Jesus said when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment in all of Scripture? Remember what he said? We should all know this one, right? How did he respond? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is, Jesus said, the great and foremost commandment. That's Hosea 6, 6. In Matthew 12, the disciples, one day they're out, they're picking grain. Actually, it was on the Sabbath. Can you believe it? On the Sabbath, they're out picking grain. Pharisees spot them. They rush up to Jesus and say, Look, your disciples are breaking the Sabbath. Evil, wicked men. How can you tolerate that? What are you going to do about it, Jesus? So he turns to them and he says, If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. See, you guys, you don't get it. You don't get it. You know the book of Hosea. You know Hosea 6.6. But you have no clue what it means. You're condemning them. When God's saying, what do I want more than anything else? Is mercy. Not sacrifice. By the way, God did not say you couldn't eat or pick food to eat on the Sabbath. They'd missed it. And just as Jesus did in Matthew 9, he again quotes Hosea 6, 6. He's saying, you guys have totally missed a point. You have made it all about rules and rituals and self-righteousness. But you know what? I don't care about sacrifices if they aren't from a loyal heart. I don't care about adhering to rules if they are not being followed from a steadfast love. Jesus is saying you're more concerned with the outside, not the inside. But with God, it's the other way around. In fact, Jesus made it clear many times that if the inside is right, the outside is going to follow. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, right? Just as in marriage, my faithfulness, my service, my kindness to my wife, they need to be done out of my loyal affection for her, not in place of it. How would my wife feel if I came home and I told her, honey, you know, I I took care of the bills today. I I cleaned up out in the front yard. I I stayed away from other women today because I am compelled to fulfill my vows. Oh, and here are some flowers. How would she feel about that? I mean, rather should it not be, honey, I did these things today because I love you. Because you mean so much to me difference isn't there and you see that's where the israelites missed it and that's where we can often miss it all that i say all that i do all that i think even these must be motivated by chesed for god paul said in first timothy 1 5 the goal of our instruction is love and in context love for god 
Loving God is what we must keep ever before us. Loving God is what we cannot lose sight of in the busyness of life. Loving God is what we must hold on to no matter what comes our way. What trial, what suffering, what situation. Loving God is what Jesus died to make possible for us. And as we consider how to cultivate a loyal love, a steadfast love for God, that is where it must begin, at the cross. It always goes there, doesn't it? For it is at the cross we must come in repentance and confessing our sin, desiring to turn from it to God. It is at the cross we must come for Christ's forgiveness, which He offers through His death. It is at the cross that we must come so that we may be reborn by the Holy Spirit, so that genuine love for God is actually something we can achieve, we can express. And... Brothers and sisters, it is to the cross we must continually come so that we can look at that visible and graphic and clear picture of God's love for us. For seeing God's loyal love moves us to love. That's the whole message of Hosea. That is why God put that poor man through all that he went through so that we could see in a in a a clear way in a in an emotionally uh, uh, gripping way so that we would understand the depth of God's affection and as you dwell upon his deep love as we look at it in the scriptures and books like hosea then you will be moved to love him even more you know it blows me away think about this a minute blows me away to think God sought me first. He first demonstrated his love for me, for us. J.I. Packer said, we do not make friends with God. God makes friends with us. Bringing us to know him by making his love known to us while we were yet sinners, right? Christ died for us. And Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. I am the good shepherd and I know my own. Ponder that. (laughs) Keep reminding yourself of that. I'm the good shepherd and I know my own. And he's not talking about there the fact that he knows your name. He knows where you were born. He knows where you live now. He's saying, I know you. I know you. What also fosters our loyal love for him is to spend time with him. Hearing his voice through the pages of scripture, pouring out our heart to him in prayer. The more we learn about him, the more we're reminded of him, the more we see truths about him as expressed in books like Hosea, then the nearer you will be drawn to him. It it keeps coming back to this, brothers and sisters, to press on to know him, to keep pressing on. To continually strive. So brothers and sisters, I would ask you, are you fervently pressing on towards Christ? Now before ending our time this morning, there's one other thing which I found as I was thinking about this verse, uh, particularly in Hosea 6.6 this week, that I desire loyal love. I was thinking about why. Why does God, why does it say that He desires it? And it hit me. The answer's right there in the verse. Because he likes it. Because he likes it. That's what the word means. Not only is he worthy of our love for him, for all he has done for us, not only does he deserve it, but he also enjoys it. And I want to do what pleases my Savior, don't you? Lord, help us. Father, we've sung these words Declaring love. Lord Jesus, we've sung about expressing love towards you. And and I know for me, Lord, I fall so far short of that. Lord, move in us, ignite in us passion for you. Move us to pursue you, to press on to know you as the chief aim of all our lives. Lord, that knowing Christ... Living 
for him would be our pursuit. Thank you for Hosea. Thank you for this man and for using him and his life and speaking through him, communicating to us your great love. Thank you for the cross. Greatest expression of love there ever was. Lord, just remind us, move in us, keep us from being distracted so that we may ever be looking upon the cross, fervently pressing on to know Jesus our Lord. And it's His name that we pray. Amen.